Take your Bibles and let's head over to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. As you're turning, I'd like to do a little quiz with you this morning. I know that we're in school season and some of you do not want to take any quiz whatsoever on the Lord's Day when we have off from school, but this one should be pretty easy. I want to give you some samples of weird laws or are they real or not real laws in different areas. So I'll put it up, you get to decide, yes or no, is it a real law or is it just something that came out of the preacher's silly imagination. Here we go. Is it on the books or not? In Oklahoma and Ohio, you can't make faces at a dog. Real or not real? It is a real law in some places. Okay, Florida, it's illegal to sing in your swimsuit. Yes or no? It is in some areas on the books in Florida. Arizona, you can't have a donkey sleeping in your tub after 7 p.m. Real or not real? Seriously. It's a law. It's a law someplace in Arizona. Alabama, it's illegal to drive while blindfolded. It is on the books. It's a law down there. Arkansas, it's illegal to sound your horn at any place where they serve serve cold drinks and sandwiches after 9 p.m. Real or not real? That's real. That's real. Here we go. Delaware, it's against the law for a pawnbroker to accept an artificial limb for payment. (laughs) It's real. It's really on the books, yeah. It's illegal to consume fried chicken by any other means than with your hands. It's real. It's real. It's there in, in some areas. It's illegal for a woman to drive a car without her husband waving a flag in front of it beforehand. <laughs> if it's a, not a law, should it be? Okay. What do you think? It's on the books. Yeah. Yeah. Michigan, it's illegal to tie a crocodile or alligator to a fire hydrant. In Michigan? It's there, absolutely. In Alaska, it's illegal to push a moose out of a moving airplane. (laughs) Well, it's unwise to try, but what do you think? Is it a law? It is a law. Okay. Pennsylvania. Here we go. Does Pennsylvania have these? A bedroom may not be built more than 200 feet from a bathroom. (laughs) It's real. Yeah, it's real. Here we go. Fortune-telling is illegal for profit or personal gain. It's on the books in Pennsylvania, yeah. Vehicles are not to be purchased on a Sunday. That's true, okay. Catching fish with your bare hands is illegal. Who said real? Is it real? Yeah, it really is. You're absolutely right. Pastors of churches are to be given at least four days off per week. No. Okay. Though if you want documentation for the Pennsylvania ones, there it is. What I want to talk about this morning is a time when the disciples were shaking up the joint, and it had to do with a weird law that was passed. 
If we set the setting, the setting you're going to want to think back to chapter 3. In chapter 3, the story starts that the disciples are going out, they're preaching the word of God, they head for the temple, and as they head for the temple, they run into a man at the gate of the temple who's been there basically lame for 40 plus years ever since he's born. And he asks for alms. They say, we don't have any, but in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Immediately the man starts, as the text reads, leaping, walking, enters the temple, walking, leaping, praising. The writer wants you to get the idea he was healed immediately. Without therapy, he was there. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. So it is a legitimate, it is a undeniable miracle that takes place. Well, the disciples take advantage of it. If you remember uh, that Peter and John, after they've done the healing, they see the crowd, they immediately start preaching. And as they're preaching a message about Jesus, in comes the spiritual leaders of the people, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, those in charge, and they get really upset that they're preaching about Jesus. Now remember, this is just weeks after that very council of leaders had said Jesus needed to be crucified. So now his disciples are saying, Jesus is the one that did a miracle. He's alive. He's come back from the dead and they're upset. So they arrest Peter and John and apparently they arrest the lame man because the next day he's standing in court with them. But they can't hold a trial at night because it's illegal under Jewish law to hold a trial at night even though they did a few weeks before with Jesus. And so Acts chapter 4 comes where the Sanhedrin, which is their legal group, gets the, Jew, the, gets the disciples together and they're trying them. And as they're trying them, they're upset. They say, we don't want you to speak about Jesus anymore. They're really ticked at this. But they've got a problem. They can't find them breaking a law. They've not done anything that is punishable at this point. There isn't anything on the books. And yet they want them to stop. But because the people are outside the door saying, a miracle was done, a miracle was done, they don't want to take drastic measures they want them to stop because they're looking bad. They killed this Jesus. And at the same time, they're afraid of the crowd. So what they do is they pass a law. They make it a new law at that moment. They command them not to speak or, at a, I should say it, not to speak at all. The word has the idea of silence. You don't say another word ever, ever about this Jesus. And they threaten them and then they let them go. Well, when the disciples exit, it's an interesting account that, that the disciples, they understood that this was really serious. They didn't think this was a silly law in the books. They, they understood they were, under, they were going to be in big trouble if they spoke about Jesus anymore. In fact, they, uh, they understood that this was a really legitimate law. And the disciples... They understand that this was going to happen because Jesus had told them just weeks before, he says, the world hates you, know it that it hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world will love you. But because you are not of the world and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world's going to hate you. And he goes on and Jesus said, remember the word I said unto you, a servant's not greater than the master. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. They know this. They understand that this threat is part of what Jesus predicted. There's persecution. And then when they get together and they start talking, they make comments in this passage where they say in verse 25, who by the mouth of thy servant David said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? And the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. What they're doing in that verse 
is they are quoting from the Old Testament Psalm 2. We looked at Psalm 2 back in May, so I'm sure you remember it. Yeah, okay. In Psalm 2, it is a passage that the Jews would use, and it starts off where it says, Why do the heathen oppose? Why do the people scheme and plot? Why do the kings and rulers get together and they plot against God and his Messiah? And now the disciples are saying, that's what's happening to us. Exactly what was predicted. And they make application of this by comments they're going to make. Now, let me remind you of the text. The text says that after these people and these nations and these generations oppose God, God's going to have them in derision. God's going to laugh at them. Basically, God's going to have the last laugh because he's going to set up his king on Zion and those people who have rebelled against God, they're going to be punished. We looked at that in Psalm 2. The Jews, when they would use this passage, they would use it in the coronation of their kings. And they applied it this way. They said, we as a nation are being attacked. The attack here isn't just against God, it's against us. And and the heathen are raging against us. The kings are plotting against us. But God will raise up our king and deliver us eventually and beat these Gentile kingdoms. So they, the, the, the Jews understood this not to be a messianic psalm, but they understood it to apply to them when they're under persecution. Well, the disciples understood this as messianic, that it referred to Christ, but since the Gentiles would rage against God and Christ, they also said they're raging against us. What's happening right now when the Senate, the Sanhedrin, said we are not supposed to speak anymore, they're doing Psalm 2. They're raging against God. They're plotting against God. And we're getting the fallout of it. This is really serious. This isn't something that's to be played around with. In fact, if we just turn the page to chapter 5 and go a little bit further, the next three, four chapters, it's going to be persecution. They're going to be arrested again. They're going to be beaten. There's going to be the martyrdom of Stephen. There's going to be a martyrdom of many saints. And eventually here in the next few weeks we're going to see how the, how the Christians are forced out of Jerusalem. Many of them have to flee for their lives because there's a persecutor coming and hailing men and women and children to jail. So when this happens in Acts chapter 4, the believers aren't laughing at a silly law. They understand this is serious. They understand this, this has dire consequences, as predicted, as we're going to experience, they said. What strikes me is, what did they do, even though they thought this was really serious? Because they thought this, was, this could be deadly, how did they react? What did they do when they were let go? And what you find out is they do two things. They, first of all, go to their own company. We read that, that as soon as they were let go, verse 23, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Their own company, I'm not sure. You, you're wiser than I am. Is Peter and John saying they went to the 12? Did they go to the 120? Did they go to the thousands that have recently gotten saved? I'm not sure which one it is. But as they gather together with a group of believers, whatever the amount of that group of believers They gather together with their own kind. It doesn't use church yet. The the word church isn't going to show up for another couple chapters. 
but it's going to be there eventually. But right now it's making it very clear. They left that kind, their persecutors, and they went to their own kind. The believers of whatever size. The point is, they don't run away. The point is, they didn't isolate themselves when they were faced with trial. They understood the concept that Jesus was teaching that fellowship between believers is critical in handling life's problems. Fellowship is absolutely essential for us to provoke one another to good works. Fellowship is essential for us to be encouraged. Church isn't something you can take and leave. It is a God-designed gathering upon the first day of the week where we find encouragement. We aren't supposed to isolate. Even if the trials are, are severe that we're facing, like they did, life and death. But they not only gathered together, the other thing that strikes me is they prayed. That's the bulk of what happens here. It says, and when they, the people heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord, and they said, Lord, you are God, who has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of your servant David, you said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? And the king of the earth stood up, and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and his Christ. For of a truth against your holy child, whom you anointed, it is true, the heathen raged, the kings rose up, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, they were gathered together against your Christ. For to do whatsoever your hand and your counsel had determined beforehand to be done, just as you predicted, God, it happened. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth your hand to heal, that the signs and the wonders may be done by the name of your holy child, Jesus. So it strikes me that these guys, they, they didn't panic. They didn't pout. They didn't blame. They didn't politic. They prayed. When trials came, their first reaction was to pray. Now, this is amazing. This is amazing that they would even do it. Because in the past, when they were facing trials, they slept to get away from the trial. In the past, when they faced trials, they ran. They hid in the upper room. But now they have learned that the way to handle trials is not to run away from people and God, but to run to people and God. And so they run to him. And they actually pray. They don't just talk about it. They prayed. They prayed together. There is value in the Bible about gathering together with others to pray. Not just in your own time, personal time, which is great, which is fabulous. But getting together with others in the church to pray. And I'm thankful for the dozens of you who are catching that vision. Who even like this past week, some 50 of you gathered together for prayer on Wednesday. Tremendous. And I hope that spirit continues and more of you get in that vision that we need to pray together, to get together, to support one another. But as well, what strikes me is they prayed together again. They had already done it in chapter 1. They did it in chapter 2. They're going to prayer in chapter 3. It's not like they said, I prayed enough. I did it at school. I did it at work. They said, we need to pray together now when there's a special need that arose. And so they understand. The disciples are clever enough. They're wise enough. They're getting at that. We never get enough of praying. And so what did they do? 
they pray. Now what strikes me about the prayer that they pray is two things. One is it's clearly answered. They prayed, and I stopped where I did, because they're praying, God, give us boldness to speak your word. In the midst of a trial that says, stop speaking. We've been told to be silent. We can't be silent. So help us to be bold enough. And we read in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place is shaken where they were assembled together, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. God answers their prayer. Now, the question is, why did God answer their prayer and sometimes he doesn't answer yours? Okay, and we know that sometimes God says yes, sometimes he says no, sometimes he says wait. But in this case, something else that strikes me about this is not only is their prayer answered, their prayer is recorded. This is rare in Scripture that we get the extent of somebody's prayer fully recorded. But God in his wisdom said, I want people in Lebanon in 2023 to know what was prayed that resulted in me answering so that they know how to pray so I can give them results as well. And so it's recorded how they prayed, which is interesting because they don't have books at this point. They don't have Matthew, they don't have Mark, they don't have Luke, they don't have John. They're not written yet. They don't have Ephesians 6. They don't have it written down to instruct them how to pray. All they have is what Jesus taught them that they can remember. And so they're going to pray in a way that is extremely effective to the point God is pleased to answer. What is it, God recorded it for a reason, what is it in the recording of their prayer can we find that will help us in our prayer life? When we do it. Not if, but when we say we need to do it. What did they do? I'm just going to break it down in a silly way. I hope that it has some help. And here's the questions I want you to be asking as we do the rest of this study. You have to ask yourself honestly, do you really pray? Do you really pray? Do you respond to trials in prayer or do you panic? You have to ask yourself in this honest way, do you seek the prayer support of others when a trial comes? A bigger question is, do you provide prayer support for others when they face a trial? Could others rely upon you to be a prayer warrior for them? A question to ask is, do you pray in such a way, and this is where we're going, that God is inclined to give you an answer? So what was it about their prayer? Number one is this. Their prayer that's recorded reveals what they thought about God. As they approached him, how did they approach him? What was their attitude? What was their thinking about God? Well, obviously what stands out is that they say, God, you are. And when they say that, the first word that they use is they say, Lord, you are despotes. You are a despot. In our culture, in our language today, we think despot in a negative sense. It wasn't that in Bible days. Despot didn't have a negative connotation. It simply meant you are the absolute ruler. You are the one, the one who is in complete control. It was used at times in the New Testament for servants to their masters, recognizing that they are totally dependent upon, totally to be obedient to their masters. And it wasn't negative. It was a positive idea. You are God. You are Lord. You are master. You are the one that I must listen to. And then they go on and they make another comment. 
They do what shows up in Scripture at times when people pray. They recall how God in his power created the universe. They are talking in the sense that you're the creator. You are the sustainer. You are so amazing. You're not only an authority, but you are able to do what? Anything. You created everything. You sustain everything. In other words, you have all power. You are supposed to have all control in my life, and I know you have all power. And then they quote from, about God, you said by David. By the way, here's just, it's just plugged right in there. This is one of those texts that gives you absolute confidence that the Old Testament is inspired by God. Because they, the apostles say, God, you inspired David to write this. So here's one of those New Testament verses giving you assurance that the Old Testament is inspired by God. But when they say Psalm 2, they're saying, God, we know you are working a plan. We know you have a redemptive plan. A plan that there may be trials and troubles and challenges and difficulties. But in the end, you're going to exalt your Messiah and we will live with him in a kingdom where he rules and reigns and all believers will enjoy perfect peace and harmony. And so they're praying. They understand this God who is all-powerful, who is in control, he has a plan. And in this plan, it may be I'm hitting bumps. I'm going to hit some real challenges. We're going to suffer some of the, some of the accusations and persecutions that come against the anointed's followers. But we know that eventually you are going to be the victor. So when you pray, think this through. These guys followed Jesus' instructions. They didn't have them written yet, but they knew that when you pray, start off by saying, Our Father which is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Come with praise. Come with reverence. They did that. Our God, you are Lord, you are the creator. But they have in their mind that God, you are in control even though outwardly where we live, it doesn't look like people like you. It doesn't look like people want you. It doesn't look like people really want to embrace your teachings. And they're against you. They're against your standards. But we know you are not kicked off the throne. It doesn't make any difference what Washington does. Our God is still on the throne. So there's a reminder there. There's a reminder as they prayed, they thought this, God, you know everything. You know exactly what you're doing. You know that the heathen will rage and they'll do this and they'll do that. And you know how to bring us through this difficult time. You know. You haven't forgotten about us. You haven't abandoned us. You are working a plan that includes difficulties in our life, but you know. And not only do you know, you are so powerful, you can give us everything we need to go through these trials. Is that the way you think about God? That he is all-powerful, all-knowing, totally, totally man you know, maneuvering things to work out for your best. As well... They are saying that God, no matter how difficult this gets, you never lose power and ability to give us what we need. And in fact, God, this is what we know. You're in charge, not us. You're the despot, not us. That, my friend, is a huge, huge difference in praying. 
when you say, not my will, but thine be done. So when you pray, how do you think about God? Do you realize that prayer is about getting God's will done on earth, not getting your will done in heaven? When you pray, how do you approach the Lord? Being very honest, very candid here this morning, do you recognize in your spirit and in your mind that he is, is in control no matter how chaotic life has become? No matter how difficult life has become, he is still in control. Do you think in your mind, he is still Lord, not me? Or when you pray, do you have this idea that, that you're saying, I recognize God has a plan for me that may include difficulties. And I'm going to trust that his plan is really best. That he and his wisdom, he and his power, he knows what he's doing and he is going to be able to walk me through that difficult time. He is going to be able, because he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing, to know what's best to give me at this moment to carry on. Do you pray that way in the middle of trials? Do you pray in the middle of those trials that all of a sudden you say in your heart, I will honor you even in the midst of the heathen raging, even in the midst where I'm being attacked personally, I am still going to honor you. I'm not going to get angry with you. I'm not going to give up on you. I'm not going to run away from you. I'm going to run to you. And I'm going to ask you for help because I trust you. I believe in you. Or do you panic and turn to others, turn to self, turn to government? Challenging thoughts about how this works. Do you, in, when you come to prayer, really believe God is God of your life? Now, that's how they thought about God. But you go a little bit further and it tells us what they think about themselves. And how they, what they, what they, how they view themselves. And as you just work out the passage, it says in verse 29, it says, here's my prayer request. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants. Obviously, what they do is they understand that it's not just in words. We really mean this. We're your servants. We're your douloi. We are the ones that we are underneath a plan. We believe you are our sovereign, not just everybody else's. You are sovereign in our life, my life, not just everybody else's. But you are in control and I recognize that even though you're sovereign and you're in control, I have a role to play. I don't believe, they don't believe in fatalism. That God is so in much in control that it doesn't make any difference. What you do, things are going to end up the way they are, so why even bother? That's not true. There is in the spiritual realm, there is the idea that God is sovereign, God is in control, but there is free will. God has a sovereign plan, and that plan is going to eventually, it's going to get there that Christ is going to rule and reign. But in the meantime, do we have choices to cooperate with God's plan or to oppose it? The answer is yes. And sometimes you may and I make the choice that we oppose God's plan. 
Sometimes when God brings trials into our life, we resist them and we don't let God grow us the way he wants to grow us. Sometimes people are, are going to say, well, I'm going to turn away from God, even believers. And I'm going to handle the difficulty myself and they panic and they do dumb things. Does God force them to do exactly what he wants? He could. He's sovereign. But he does allow for free will. The disciples exercise free will by saying, God, we know you are in charge. You have a plan. You are all powerful. And we know that we are a part of this plan. You have told us that we are to be witnesses. That's our role. That's our responsibility as you are working this. We have something to do. We're your servants and we're willing to do our part in your plan. Help us to speak your word. Even though by speaking the word, that's how we got into this trouble. So we have to decide. Do we obey God? Or do we, hand, do we handle and follow our fears? And they say, we're making this decision. That we are going to listen to a sovereign God... And do what he wants us to do, which as we do it, there's difficulties in our life. And we don't know exactly what's going to happen. We're going to keep on following him as hard as it gets. And eventually we know the outcome. The outcome is going to be the glory of Christ. And so they say, we're willing to obey even though there's difficulties. Even though there's challenges. We're not going to run away. We're not going to give up. We're not going to get angry. So the questions come, do you honestly see yourself as, when you pray, do you come as a servant? When you're praying, where you say, I am here below you. Or do you basically come like when you're ordering food at the restaurant? God, I'm giving you my order for this day. I want it this way, and I want it medium rare, and I want it smothered with onions so that that calf liver is absolutely wonderful. I think, I do, I think this. I think that many a times, me and many of you, we're guilty of treating God like a table waiter. We are demanding of him. We are ordering him. We are resisting him. We are saying, I don't like this trial. Get it out of here. They didn't do that. They understood that they're the servant, that trials were part of the redemptive plan. And so their response is, we're going to serve God even though the trials are there. The response is that we're going to continue to serve even though we know that it's going to get worse in the future. That's the amazing part. They understand this is just the beginning of the difficulties. But God help us to be faithful, to obey you no matter what's going to happen. Do you have that attitude? God, I want to be, more than anything else, I want to be obedient versus, more than anything else, I want no pain. I want comfort. I want ease. But the disciples, they pray. God, help us to do your will. Help us to do what you want us to do. Prayer is not to be us telling God what to do. Prayer is to be asking God to do his will in us. Huge difference.
Which way are you praying? Well, the disciples, and they're praying, they are very serious. They know they have serious problems coming ahead, and they're serious in their prayer life. And they pray, grant us boldness. This is, God, this is what we need. Grant us boldness. Help us in the middle of this. They know that they're going to have more opportunities ahead. They understand this. They understand that they can't do this on their own. They're apostles. They've been filled with the Spirit before. They've already done some of this preaching in a crowd where there's, where there's all kinds of reactions. But God, what I did yesterday doesn't count. I need your help for today and tomorrow. What position I hold doesn't count. I need you. Lord, I need you today. I need your help. And then they even make this comment about the stretching of the hands with the miracles. And some of you may say, well, are they praying for more miracles, etc., 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 which I, probably is included in there to some degree. But you, some of you weren't uh, of choice. You weren't with us the last few Sundays where he talked about the miracles and the healings and the signs and the wonders. And I want you just to understand that the Bible makes it very clear that when miracles like those were happening, they were given to authenticate, as Hebrews says, and we talked about in the last three Sunday nights, they were to authenticate that these people are coming from God, listen to them, you know, compare what they're saying then with the truth, and as well, they were to get the attention of the Jews. In particular, signs were really driven towards the Jews who they did this to Jesus. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. And Jesus kept on giving them a sign. You know, do more healings. Do more things. And they would say, well, give us another sign. And so it was to get their attention. So the disciples, the apostles, they understand this. They understand at that moment, at that time in history, miracles were still extremely valid. The healings, the whatever was taking place, like the man being raised up. And so their response is, help us When you do your part, help us to do our part. Give us boldness to take the advantage of the opportunity you just created. You just healed a man. People are gathering. Obviously, you did this miracle so as to give us this platform. Obviously, you did this miracle so as to authenticate our message. So help us to declare this message and not waste the moment that you prepared. And so they're praying this way. They again are praying, we are your servants, help us to do our part. And so like the apostles of of old, uh, just a a really basic truth, we all need to pray for boldness because we all struggle with witnessing. So we need to say, God help us. We need to ask God that when opportunities arise, help us not to just overlook them or pass them off to others. We all battled with that. So did the apostles. It's normal. You're not a bad Christian because you're nervous to share the gospel. It was true in the New Testament that they, that they needed boldness. It's true in the New Testament in 2023. We need God's help in that area. But like the apostles of old, we need to be more dependent upon the Lord to do his will. Even though, even though they've preached now a couple different messages, they're saying we can't do it really well without your help. Even though you've taught Sunday school, even though you've been raising kids, even though you've done Bible study, you need God's help to do it in the future. Every time. You need the Lord's assistance, His power, His strengthening, His wisdom. You need to be in prayer for God, help me. I need to, I need you. So, we come to the third aspect. 
We see what they thought about God. We see what they thought about themselves. I want you to see what they think about their trials. How they approach the trials when they say, Behold their threatenings. Do you, do you notice what they didn't pray for? Which we often pray for? They didn't pray, Take out our enemies. People who are politically opposed to us. In precatory prayer, wipe them out. People who are opposed to Christianity, God kill them. And they're living in a time period where they know that some of the Old Testament saints prayed that way. They don't. They don't pray in imprecatory prayer. They don't pray for the destruction of these enemies. They don't do it. It's not there. You can't find it. They don't pray, God change our circumstances. They, they don't pray, God, we want to return to the good old days. You know how I would have prayed there? Jesus, come back and walk with us some more. So I can just follow you some more and watch you do more miracles. It was a lot easier when you were here. They don't do it. They don't pray that way. They don't pray for greater ease, greater comfort. They don't pray, God, make the world a friendlier place for us Christians. They don't ask that. They, they don't pray, take us out of this world. Take us away out of the troubles. They don't pray that. Now, I don't know about you, I pray for the rapture. I wish it would come yesterday. But when trials come, is that what we're supposed to do? Is just huddle up in our house, do no more service for Christ, rapture me, rapture me, rapture me. It's not what they did. They didn't do that. They don't say, God, take every trial, all difficulties, all threats, remove them from our life. They don't do that. Why is that? Well, in their prayers, as they think about trials, they are determined, now put it all together, they're determined we're going to continue to serve God in our trial. We're not going to quit. I need to be obedient, even though the obedience got me into this trouble, I'm going to continue to be obedient. Why is that? Because they have this solid biblical understanding. They believe these trials are no surprise to God. They believe that God is working Psalm chapter 2. That this is part of his overall redemptive plan. That for them, it includes trials and troubles at that time, persecution. They believe this. They believe that as they follow Christ, trials will be a part of the following Christ. They are not surprised by that. They are not shocked by that. They are not saying, God, how could you? Why is that? Because they knew what Jesus taught them. They knew, he said, if any would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his flowers. No. They knew that to follow Christ would be carrying a cross. They knew that Jesus said, I am sending you as lambs into the midst of wolves. They knew they, that the world was going to be against them. They understood this idea that if we are going to be true disciples, we have got to have an enduring spirit. 
a steadfastness of serving Christ even in difficult times. They knew from what Christ said that he wasn't bringing peace on this earth at this time. That doesn't come until he returns at his second coming. Rather, he said, I'm not come to bring peace but a sword. I've come to set people against people. It'll happen in their own households that people will not like your Christianity. And he says that the enemies that you may have against your spiritual walk may be your own family. He told them that I said to you that you may have peace from me in your heart, but in this world you're going to have troubles. Take heart. I've overcome the world. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. But it's not going to come from the world. It's not going to be in this world. They knew that. And they had to make a decision. And the decision they make in Acts chapter 2 is if I'm following Christ... It's going to be tough, yet I'm going to follow Christ. That's their decision. The trials will not stop me from serving Jesus. May I ask you a most potent, powerful question? What has it taken to stop you from serving Christ? What has it taken to stop you from praying, from witnessing? from dedicating to serving Christ. Some of you at teen camp, I'm going to really follow the Lord. What's it done to take you to stop? Somebody said a nasty word? You had a terrible illness? You got a bad doctor's report? You faced a huge trial at work? Jesus gave his life for you. He suffered hell for you. And he will not give you above that you are able to bear. He didn't send trials into your life to destroy you. The trials that come into your life, even if they come from Satan or foolish decisions, God can use them for good. God can use them in your life to grow you. They've grown you, but he wants to grow you. But what's it taken for you to stop? Well, these disciples, they say, we're going to keep following we're going to keep on following because our trials are not an excuse for us to give up the duty. We can't go AWOL. We just can't quit. There's a preacher that years ago, on commenting on this text, made this observation. We should not be praying for easier lives. We should pray to become stronger men and women. We should not be praying for tasks equal to our power. We should be praying for power equal to the tasks that God has given us. My friend, you have to ask yourself a question. Do you pray this way? Almighty God, God of heaven and earth who can do all things, who can control what he chooses to control, I want to be obedient to your will even though it's cost me already. I want to be obedient, but I'm going to need your help to be obedient. Help me. Help me to do that. Please. Do you pray that way? Have you prayed this way? Are you willing to pray this way? There was a lady that some of you may recognize the name. 
she years ago, she was in England, came to the United States as a little girl but had been saved, settled out in the Ohio area for a while. And there she went to a missions conference and she, she surrendered her life to get involved with missions. Because she was having health issues at the time, she couldn't go to missions. She met her husband. And they married and they had a little girl. The little girl is around two, three years old at the time of what happens is they go back and visit some family and relatives in New York City. And when they get back to New York City, they decide that one afternoon they're going to go to Long Beach. They're going to spend some time at the shore. And while they're sitting on the shore, all of a sudden they hear a young child, a boy, they figured he was around six years of age, calling for help. He was caught in a riptide. His life was in danger. The woman's husband jumped up and went swimming out there to rescue the little boy. But often, like tragic situations occur, the little boy was so frantic, he ended up climbing on the man, and the man drowned. This lady's left with a small child. She's left without a husband. She has to pick up the pieces of her life. And then she still has that burden for missions, so she decided that she's going to go to the mission field anyway. And she went to the mission field and spent 15 years there, met another man they married, and they had an ongoing ministry until her health forced her to come back. And they spent the remaining part of their years, even though she was in ill health, they spent it serving Christ. She isn't famous for the story, but she is famous for the song she wrote. The words you understand, the song that she wrote is a song that you're very, very familiar with. She wrote it in that interim after her husband had recently died and making a decision, do I keep on serving Christ or not? You know the song, "'Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus." A prayer song? Is it your song that you are willing to trust in Jesus no matter what? Think on the words. Meditate on the words. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus Just to take Him at His word Just to rest upon His promise Just to know, thus saith the Lord Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him How I prove Him more and more Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus Oh, for grace to trust Him more I'm so glad I learned to trust Him Precious Jesus, Savior, friend And I know that He is with me Will be with me to the end How I trust Him
with their heads bowed and our, eyes, our hearts bowed as well. We come before the Lord and we just sang about trusting Him and how we've proved Him time and tested Him. What are you going to do this week? What changes will you make? What dedication, what level will you grow to? How will you respond like the disciples of old? Or will you run, quit, isolate, panic? Maybe you're here this morning and as you're here, you don't even know if Christ is your Savior. We want to give you that opportunity in just this last minute before we close. If you would like to talk to somebody about knowing Christ as your Savior for all eternity, then why don't you just get up right now and head over there to that door. Rest are praying, but if you're not sure of your eternal destiny, just look up. Head over to that door. Meet with some of those people over there. They will show you from the Word of God how you can be assured that you're headed for heaven. Do that right now. We'll pause. We'll wait for you. Your soul is that important. Please go. Child of God, it's easy to preach. It's going to be hard to live. What are you going to do this week? How are you going to pray this week? What spirit of dedication will you have this week? Father, help us. Help us to be more than just going through the motions. Help us to have a servant's heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.